0: good to be with you, Disciples Church, this morning. Thankful for all that God's doing in the life of our our church and our witness here in Bakersfield and beyond. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. In order for us to focus on the denial of Peter next week, we're going to study the three passages that surround Peter's denial here in chapter 18 so that we can look to the trials that Jesus went through in a sermon that I'm calling today, False Witness. So to dive in, look with me to John 18, verse 12, beginning 12 through 14. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. The setting is, it's Thursday night, the night before Jesus would be crucified, he has just been arrested by a band of soldiers 500 deep and the temple police in the garden where he and the disciples frequented. Judas betrayed him by leading the authorities there to that most special place to arrest Jesus. The disciples have now scattered to go hide, although we will see some reemerge in the coming hours at the cross. Here we see the first of what will be six trials that will happen throughout the night and into Friday morning. On the screen, I've listed the six trials or times that Jesus stood before the Jewish or Roman officials. I believe I've also put it in your handout this morning to give you an idea how the next hours went leading up to Pilate finally giving the people what they wanted, which is Jesus to be crucified. We see the first one here, first religious trial before Annas, former high priest, still actually operating under that title. I'll speak to that in a moment. Next, he'll go before Caiaphas, the current high priest appointed by the Roman government. We see testimony of that in specific in Matthew 26. We'll read that in a little bit. And then before the Sanhedrin, the religious supreme court, Matthew 27. Then Jesus goes to the civil trials. He stands before Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, John 18, 28-38. Pilate sends him to Herod, the king of that region, we see testimony of that in Luke 23, 6-12, through 12. and then Herod sending him back to Pilate, the Roman governor, in John 18, 38-19, 16, and we will come back to, to that last engagement with Pilate in its own sermon, as it's very critical and important we see it in its fullness. Today, we're going to see the first four trials unfold as we... Study chapter 18 in parts, and also peek to Matthew 26 and 27 uh, for the others. I'm very excited to preach today's sermon, for it is yet another example of every word in God's word being so helpful and, and holding so much purpose for us. If we would just slow down to rightly read and receive it. I, I, at a number of points in my preparation for the sermon, had to reach out to others just to celebrate what I was just enjoying and celebrating about this text. Um, And so I'm very thrilled to get to preach it today. May it be good and helpful for each of us and cause us to truly worship him all the more. First look with me at verse 12 as we see that Jesus is bound And all the significance that comes with, again, what is seemingly a very passing verse. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. They bound Jesus. Which is kind of surprising. Because we know that he's innocent. We know that he's compliant to be arrested. Why? Because it's been God's plan from before time that he would give his life as a ransom for many They don't see, those who bound him, don't see his willingness to accomplish his plan. All they know is that he is a force to be reckoned with. Why? Because he has a massive following, his ability, proven ability to perform amazing miracles, and what they just went through. If you missed last week's sermon, please go back and listen. But we we saw that in the garden, These highly trained, hundreds of highly trained soldiers and officials were were thrown to the ground at one word of Jesus. So to you and I, binding him might seem like a bit much, but to understand how they see him is key. And don't forget the general practice of law enforcement when detaining someone, taking them into custody, is to bind them so that they don't get crazy and come at you in all the wrong moment, right? Take notice here at the reality of man's inability, inability to have true spiritual discernment. Consider with me in this the inefficiency of binding Jesus. I mean, this is the most <laughs> inefficient, um, futile effort, is it not? I mean, they're they're putting some kind of band or or strap or or chains on God the Son. <laughs> it's not like he just wielded amazing karate moves, and they need to like bind him to stop him from using his guns and punching someone. Uh, it, it's not like. He's big and buff and all yoked out in, in, in stature. And so they're fearful of him in that way. It's not like he has this big weapon they need to like take from him. He spoke a word and leveled them to the ground. But they have no way to process the spiritual reality of who Jesus is. If they did, they would get how futile binding him would be. But because they are spiritually blind, they do only what they know how to do. They operate on a horizontal plane because they have no spiritual life or discernment on the vertical, on the spiritual. And this is important for us to take note of because it happens every day around us. A man full of sin, filled with evil, Anger, guns down hundreds of people two weeks ago. And the world only knows how to handle that situation on the horizontal level. And so their answer to this is to talk security measures and gun control. When the core problem of this incident is the heart and the mind of the man who did such atrocity, and the true answer is the gospel. Now, what about people you know and love who can't seem to ever get out of their pit of despair or their practice of lawless addiction? Why? Because they only have horizontal remedies for spiritual problems. Church, we must see how desperate we are for the gospel how desperate for new birth and Jesus every life is without him people will flip-flop around in their spiritual blindness do and do only physical and depraved best efforts in an effort to remedy that which only ultimately the gospel can remedy amen Pray we see that clearly, that, that your expectations and your frustration would not be overflowing with people who are depraved and outside of Christ, in, like as if they have some way just to choose to do it better. You would have a gospel view of why they struggle in depravity, why they continue to flip-flop in these ways. Not that you don't still abhor sin and evil and not honoring God, but you have a gospel view and the way that God really works in these matters to give you a right perspective and to keep you focused on what the real answer is. Only when we have eyes to see and ears to hear are we reborn to see and savor Jesus as our only hope and joy and then have the power to overcome the temptation of sin and to spiritually thrive. Another fact I want us to see and savor here is the wonder of God's grace which equaled God the Son, not only taking on flesh, but condescending himself to being unjustly and falsely arrested and bound like a a criminal. See him going low for us here. He's being hauled off for trial in the way that each of us should be hauled off for trial and judgment praise God for his gracious work in so many of us. May we never be tired of praising him for saving us and for his ongoing work of grace to sanctify us. But there's one most important reason why Jesus would be bound. The eternal plan of God for the son to die in the place of enslaved sinners. All that happened to Christ was to fulfill the types that went before him for our biggest need. The biggest one of those types that comes to mind for me in this moment of seeing the son bound is Isaac. Consider the promise to Abraham to have many descendants the Abrahamic covenant and all that came with it and this promise of God, and not having that son in sin, they tried to have a son out of God's plan. finally Isaac is born and they love him. They've waited so long in their old age to have a son to have an heir and God has provided this. and he's going to be the first in a line, long line of descendants to the to the world to the generations. And God's instruction on Abraham is to go take Isaac to the mountaintop and to slay him. Think back on a father who so loved his son, but in faith acted on God's command and bound his son and raised the weapon of his death over his body. And yet in that, that execution did not happen. God provided another answer and all of that pointed to the answer, Jesus Christ, who too would be bound willingly for our sake. Consider all the animals of the sacrificial system which pointed to Christ. Each of them, all of them, were bound at their sacrifice. Psalm 118.27 says, Bind the sacrifice with cords unto the horns of the altar. But deeper still, and this is where I really got chills in just preparing and seeing the fullness of this applied to us, consider the state of each of us in our sin. Consider the fact that we are enslaved, that we are bound to sin and only to sin. For us to be free of our enslavement from being bound in sin, he would have to be shackled and bound and sacrificed in our place. As the perfect and final substitute, he would take on our iniquity so that we could have his righteousness. He was bound so that we could be set free. Amen? Amen? Hundreds of years before that event in the garden, him being led out of the garden, bound on his way to his death, is prophesied by the sovereign God through the, through the writing of Isaiah in Isaiah 53.8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And in that same passage, it is made clear again and again that he would pay the price for our iniquities, even though we were the sheep that went astray, he was slaughtered in our place. Praise God for his sacrifice, for his substitution, for his grace, and for his love. He is truly worthy to be praised. This is the gospel. And I pray that if you've not yet ever seen or savored it, that you would. And you would see your sin, you would see that you are desperate for Christ alone, that there is no making your own way, there is no ever standing before a holy God to consume the wrath that is due you and and to overcome that. No, you will be forever condemned, that you would see your sin, you would repent of it, you would confess it, and you would trust your life to Jesus. Believe in Him alone for salvation. Become His and His alone for all that God has for you. Repent and believe. In this gospel that sets us free. Look with me now at verse 13 and 14. And we read about the first place they took Jesus. First they led him to Annas. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Here also, he fulfills not only prophecy, but type. Each animal that was to be offered in the old system was first led to the priest. So Christ is brought before the high priest. Notice, the Savior was neither driven nor dragged, but led. They led him. He walked willingly. Thereby we see again his willing submission. He offered no resistance, with infinitely greater ease than Samson of old, who could have burst his bonds As it says in Judges 16.9, so easily as the thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire was the power of Samson to break his bonds, how much greater that is fulfilled in Christ. And the prophecy of Isaiah, back to Isaiah 53, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. So, in reading that they led him here, church, that's not a passing bias verse. That's the fulfillment of hundreds of years old prophecy. To God be the glory for every detail of his perfect plan. John is the only one who tells of the Savior being brought before Annas, the synoptic gospels, the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, go straight to his appearance before Caiaphas, both of these men hold the title of high priest. It kind of depends on who you asked because of competing governmental guidelines. You might remember that we actually talked about this in John 11. Let me remind you, John 11:49. 49. One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. So Caiaphas was formally ruled the high priest by the Roman government. He was only in this office, because Rome allowed him to be there, because Rome had the power to dispose the high priest and their rule. If you go though all the way back to the Old Testament and to the Jewish rule, you can go back to the old instruct to the instruction in the Old Testament Mosaic law about the high priest and that it was an office that one had for life. Yet. History tells us that the 100 years around when Jesus lived, the Roman rule in that time meant that the office of high priest was like a revolving door. Every year or two, they were changing that guy out for someone new. So you had like two dozen men recorded to have served in that office in that season. What that also means is that this position of high priest has become weighted heavily by political influence. And the leverage that would be used by Caiaphas in the face of the biggest circumstance he would ever face in his life was very political. While he had the title through Roman rule, Jewish practice of holding the position for life meant that Annas still was the high priest. So you really have two guys claiming that title in some ways still operating in that form in this region. It's believed that they took Jesus to Annas first to buy time so that they could convene the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night for a very unorthodox trial. So They're buying time for what would be very shady gatherings in order to try to put some kind of guilt on the most innocent man who ever lived in the face of the earth. John 18, 14, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Again, this is a reference back to John 11, where we studied this. John 11, 49 through 52. Caiaphas was the first man to make the motion that Christ should be put to death. Look with me at John eleven forty nine 49 through 50. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said, we, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So Caiaphas, in his authority, denounces the wisdom of the council. You know nothing at all. He then essentially makes a case for the greater good that one man should die in the place of many. But Caiaphas' true motivation to have Jesus killed is really for his political good. The thought is, if the popular Nazarene is killed, our loyalty to Rome will be all the more established. The execution of Jesus will not only show that we have no intention of revolting against them, which was the growing fear in the region, but rather that in slaying this man who is, speak, who is seeking to establish some kind of independent kingdom is our way of showing our faithfulness to Caesar. So, see the high priest, not concerned first and foremost with the things of God, as the role of the high priest is intended to do, but with political standing and self gain. There would be no honest trial that Jesus would go through because justice, see this, is not their aim. Their aim is their belly, it is their political agenda. It is in staying rich and full of power. Sound familiar in a system that we currently might know? All right, I digress. I won't go there. All evidence of sin at work in the world, all this, both then and now, it's evidence of sin at work. It's not perfect. God's kingdom is perfect. Every, Every other part of it, when man's flesh is involved, is broke down in sin. Again, all the more reason why the gospel is the answer, ultimately, in all these things. Praise God for his true and faithful and never-ending justice. Which, in a world of great injustice, is our only hope and peace. You, You will experience, very likely, great injustice in this lifetime. If your cling is to the rule of man or the ways of man, you will be broken in injustice. May we who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb cling to the hope and the ultimate ruling justice of our God, who in his time will make all things right. Justice will prevail. Let us wait on him. pursuit of Jesus being arrested and tried should come to an end. Six opportunities to get this right. This guy's innocent, let him go. But no justice in that way would happen as it's not the aim of man. Sin is. Moreover, the release of the most innocent man to walk Is also not God's aim. Penal substitutionary atonement is God's aim. That He would pay the penalty to substitute Himself in our place to atone us back to a right relationship with God. Praise God that He saw it through. Praise God He used the darkness and the lies of willing sinful men to make a way for the lamb to be slain in our place. Without this night of injustice, God's just wrath would not have been satisfied and we would still be condemned in our sin. See the sovereign hand of God in all of this Which I call you back to John 11 one more time because we see it play out even in Caiaphas' words. John 11:52, 51 and 52. He did not say this of his own accord, Caiaphas and talking about we should have him killed instead of the people, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, not that he had necessarily a special ability to do that, but God was working in him for not only the, for not the nation only but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And we really, in that, we get a taste for the global saving work of God among the generations and among the nations and the purpose of Jesus dying. That it wasn't just for this one group of people. The benefit of this, the results of this, would be for worldwide people. For all time. Look with me at verse 19. John 18, 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So he's standing before the high priest. The trial is happening. But the fact that Annas goes straight to inquisition of the defendant. Hey, defend yourself. Is extremely out of line with Jewish trial protocol. Where the burden of proof had to come forth in a legitimate charge. And the witnesses had to be provided to validate. That the defendant should be defending anything. Not very much unlike our our modern system. Do you get that? You just bring someone, hey, so you're guilty, so what do you have to say for yourself? Does it, well, where's the justice in that? Where's the you just handpick people and just say, okay. Notice that the inquiry too is not political or civil because the, the main beef that the, the Jewish authorities had with Jesus was his theology, was his teaching. His non-conforming ways of training disciples. He was resetting the whole system. He was fulfilling all that God had been pointing to. The old covenant law demanded death for heretical or blasphemous teaching. You see that in Deuteronomy 13? So that is really what they're after. They want him dead, so they're going after blasphemy. But this is the religious head of Israel acting altogether against and without law. No indictment been drawn up. No evidence brought forth to support it. Nothing but a cowardly attempt to manipulate the prisoner so that he could obtain something which might be used against him. He's fishing. Jesus answered him. Look at verse 20. I have spoken openly to the world I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? And those who have heard me, what I said to them, they know what I said. So Jesus' answer is his way of declaring, number one, that what you're doing here is wrong. He's picking at the way he's coming at him. Hey, this is wrong. If anyone's in the wrong, it's you and it's right now. You have nothing on me. You have no witnesses that can testify wrongdoing. He's saying, my teaching has been in the public square and in the temple for years. So you have no problem, you should have no problem finding tons of witnesses to come before. This isn't one incident on one corner and we're scrambling to find the two people who were in the area. This is preaching and teaching that Jesus did publicly for three years among huge crowds in the most prominent places where these guys even were present to hear it. He says, but you don't have any. Basically, is what he's saying. You don't have any. Why? Because there's no witnesses that can stand against me. When he says, they know what I said, that's his way of saying, even if you find people who are willing to lie, deep down inside, they know what I said. Truth is still the truth. Jesus says, I have nothing. I've said nothing in secret. Now you kind of go, well, we know a lot of conversations that he had privately with the disciples or individuals. That's not what he's saying there. He's not saying he never had private conversations with the disciples. He's saying that the message he has been given, whether public or private, is the same message. There's not. I, I have not said something else that you just need to figure out what that is. My message has been the same. What, what I'm declaring about myself and how this works and what's happening is all the same. Now, notice in Jesus' answer, too, that he doesn't say anything about the disciples. Why? Because he's protecting them. Because it's not about them, it's about him. It's about him getting to the cross. And he's going to keep everyone that the Father's given him to the end. He wants the focus to stay on him. So they want to kind of look over there, left and right. No, no, no. He said, look over here. Let's talk about me. Look at verse 22. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? If there's ever a, a, a picture... Of the injustice and the depravity of man, this has got to be it. You and I might say a greater picture of the depravity of man might be throwing a baby against the wall. Right? We would maybe give that more weight. Because in some ways, in our mind, we think the baby to be more innocent. Church, we have to make sure that you have a global and deep appreciation and view of the absolute innocence of Christ. He is purity in its very definition. So the depth of the atrocity of striking the innocent Christ Is unspeakable. I say all that to stretch us. There's things I could describe about atrocities to a young child that would that would make you maybe even throw up in the room. Right? we should have that depth of injustice for this moment, all the more. In a court with a judge and ranking officials and officers, an officer is allowed to strike a bound prisoner who has done nothing wrong. In case you're wondering if that was a permissible action in the court of that day, it was not. It was illegal to strike a bound prisoner. But they let it play. The man slapped Jesus in the face. God in flesh in the face. The reverence and the worship and respect do him is like no other to ever walk the face of the earth there has never been a leader a public figure a king or an authority do more honor than he and yet for us he is bound and slapped as the first action of many atrocities against him and his body in the coming hours. This man just hit the God of all creation. Steve brought great emphasis during this week's teaching at midweek. Jesus is the one who is currently in this moment holding this man's very life together. It's a great reminder, again, that Jesus is not a victim here, as in a victim who's out of control. He is receiving such atrocities, such wickedness, in order to accomplish his task for us as our victor. Again, if you missed last week's sermon, I encourage you to go back and gather the fullness of that. In the arrest in the garden. Jesus is permitting this to happen. He's on a mission for the glory of God and the salvation of his people, of you and me. And in case you're thinking this treatment to Jesus is unique, the high priest would legally instruct those standing near Paul at a later date to strike him in the mouth in a similar circumstance. Acts 23, 1-5 bringing to mind Jesus' clear teaching that while he dies to save us from hell and the wrath of God, he does not die to save us from suffering and persecution. Something we need never forget. Jesus himself told his faithful followers, John fifteen eighteen through 20 if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, and the world loved you as its own, it, the world would love you as its own if you were of the world. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. John 15, 18-20. May we, church, be ready for whatever might come our way and stand fast to remain faithful to our God. So, surely there's mourning. Surely there's hurt in a moment like this. But if one of our faithful was captured, was being beaten, was being tortured, may one of us have the remembrance to pull up this text and remember that God has not forsaken them, okay? Let us remind ourselves that these realities are before us, as we see even with Paul. Look at verse 23, John 18, 23. Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Jesus' answer is to say, that he's not broken the law of God when it comes to speaking evil of a ruler. This is actually in reference to Exodus 22, verse 28. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. See the irony of this verse. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. He's going, I've not broken that rule here. Still under the Old Covenant. I've not cursed a ruler of the people. He's accused of speaking ill or answering wrongly. (laughs) But what is ironic is the man who just struck Jesus, God the Son, has no right to, and thereby breaks the very same command in reviling God. Look at verse 24. Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Jump with me to the Gospel of Matthew and let's read what happens before Caiaphas. Matthew 26, verse 57 through 68. Go ahead and turn here because we're in a moment going to go to Matthew 27. 57-68, through Then those who had seen Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. So this is the second trial now. Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were gathered, were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you but jesus remained silent and the high priest said to him i adjure you by the living god tell us if you are the christ the son of god jesus said to him you have said so but i tell you from now on you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven the high priest tore his robes and said he has uttered blasphemy what further witnesses do we need you have now heard his blasphemy what is your judgment they answered he deserves death they spit on his face and struck him some slapped him saying prophesy to us you christ who is it that struck you Verse 59 and 60 said they were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. Church, when the world has no honest and truthful testimony, they will manipulate and recruit liars to bring false witness. This is what we're up against still today. Sin is self-serving. It does not honor God nor does it look to play by his rules. People bound in sin can't honor God. They are bound in sin to only do sin. Church, we must never forget that even the good that people do who are bound in sin is still evil. It still is not for the glory of God. It does not honor God. It is not good in the sense that it honors God. We are not of this world and must always be aware that no matter how friendly or how loving or how sacrificial one might be in their aim, it is not for God. And their motive ultimately is self-seeking or creation worshiping. We're desperate for God to save us from this body of death from our bondage to sin. This is why Jesus endured the lies and is spit in the face and punched in the face. By his stripes, we are healed. When you are ever in a place of great injustice happening to you, fix your mind on Jesus. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint hearted. That's the words of Hebrews 12, verse 3. As morning came, the Sanhedrin gathered to make final plans to present Jesus to the governor with the request that he be put to death. Why? Because their law prohibited the kind of death they wanted from happening. So in Matthew 27, 1 and 2, When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. So with this, now the religious trials are done. You have three different instances where they've met, they've gathered, they've questioned him, they've met, they've decided here's our verdict. Full of lies and illegal practices, they have beaten an innocent man and put their depraved hearts all the more on display. So look with me now at the last section of verses we'll see this morning in John 18, John 18, 28. And they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters it was early morning. They, test, they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. It's hilarious. The governor had a headquarters in Jerusalem because he often came to the city to rule there, to do business, to oversee massive gatherings like this one, the annual Passover, all the Jews gathering upon the city. Herod the Great had two palaces built. One of those was used for the governor. John mentions that it was early in the morning, likely sunrise. And can I just say, as the sun now comes up, consider all that has happened in this night. What a night. I mean, beginning with the Passover, the Last Supper, the Farewell Discourse, Jesus for all of his people, the High Priestly Prayer in John 17, the Betrayal of Judas, and then a Long Night of Lies and Beatings. If you, beloved, ever find yourselves enduring a long night, a long and hard night, again, consider your master who endured this night for you. Amen. Once again, it's ironic that the Jewish leaders are concerned with not entering the governor's headquarters in order to avoid avoid being defiled so that they can consume the Passover. Uh, It's ironic because they're conspiring to have the most innocent man to ever live murdered, and yet they're concerned to not enter this their added little funky law that they've put together is like, oh no, we can't come inside. But let's talk to you about killing this guy. John 18, 29 through 30. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate is saying, "Why is what is he guilty of? Did you catch their answer? If he were not guilty, we would have not brought him to you. We don't have an answer for what he's guilty of that would satisfy you. So we are going to bend words and twist the moment. He's guilty. That's why he's here. Right." They can't say what he did because of their convoluted, contrived, manipulated verdict. It won't stand for cause for Pilate to rule to have him killed. For Pilate to condemn him. So they deflect. They try to say he's just doing evil. But look at verse 31. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. He's he's like, you see his frustration? Why are you calling me out of my quarters? Like, this is silly. You you go deal with it then. Now, Pilate's well aware of the weakness of the Jews' case against Jesus. So he says, you go judge him by your religious laws. But this was insufficient. They wanted him executed in the worst way. Which means they needed a ruling of the state. John 18.31b, the Jews said to him that it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now, while Jewish old covenant law gave permission for putting to death people for many reasons, these Jewish leaders are presiding in a very prominent place ruled by Rome. They're more most interested in continuing their prominent rule in the region and have their political future in mind. And so that's why all this is really convoluted because the blasphemy claim would have given under the Jewish law enough reason for them to stone him to death. But they're looking to include the Roman rule to find a way to utilize their, their ability to have him executed at the highest level to kind of accomplish all that they also want that to do for them. Now look at what John reveals to us in verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So once again, God is at work in these details. This is the other reason why Pilate condemning Jesus to death is a critical detail in God's foreordained plan. If the Jews utilized their laws, they would have stoned him to death. Crucifixion was looked upon as the Jews with great horror. Execution was considered the same of being hung, a a terrible way to die. Acts 5.30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. Acts 10.39, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. John's reference to Pilate's involvement in Jesus being condemned in a capital punishment case meant the fulfillment of all the prophecy that the Messiah would die by being hung on a tree. John 12, 32-33. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. What an amazing emphasis to the fact that God is the one ultimately in control of even the workings of his death. Evil men are at work, surely doing evil things with evil intentions. But God is at work, fulfilling his eternal covenant of redemption for his eternal glory and our eternal good. Amen? Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many should be kept alive as they are today. What a foreshadow and taste of what that ultimately means for all of his redeemed. Let's pray. Father, we humbly joyfully thank you for your holy word today. We thank you for this text and and its beautiful work in our lives to reveal to us all that you endured for for our salvation. The 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 things that you took on yourself that we deserve. And so, Lord, that our response would be gratitude. Our response would be rejoicing in the gospel, in the work of Jesus, in the beauty, in the love that he showed in these things. We recognize him as the victor, not the victim, as God Almighty in flesh. We we praise you and honor you with all of our lives. And so here we are, hear us as we respond and sing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and worship the King.